In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving in the temple before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right hand of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn the hearts, or turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the witness, I'm sorry, wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel, and I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home, and after these days his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in, my, in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture, the wonderful story that it is. And we pray that as we look over this, I I ask that you'll give our, our mind's eye understanding that we'll be able to take ourselves back to that time and that day. And we'll understand, Lord, first of all, that all your promises are true. Secondly, that nothing is impossible with God. And number three, that the just shall live by faith. And so if you say it, we believe it and we act upon it. We love you, Lord, and we're excited to look at your word today. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have you ever wondered why the story of Jesus Christ begins with the birth of John the Baptist. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. that that's one thing that us theologians or whatever, we sit in our office while you're actually working, doing things. I'm sitting there thinking to myself, I wonder why. No, I'm just kidding. So, 
One, one of the answers, there, there's a couple of answers for, to that question. One of the answers is that John is the forerunner. He, he is the herald sent to herald the king, to announce the king. Every king has a herald. Every time a king walked into a room, somebody would announce king so-and-so was walking in. When they were going through, marching through the streets, there was a herald that ran ahead of the king announcing everybody stand or everybody bow. The king is on his way. He's coming through in just a moment. And so John is the forerunner, someone who announces the coming of the king. But there's another dimension as well, and I want you to try to to think about this with me, okay? Put yourself in the shoes, sandals of the Israelites for just a moment. As a nation, Israel fell completely apart, didn't they? The kingdom split. I was just talking about that a moment ago when I was talking about faith. It reached its pinnacle with the reigns of David and his son Solomon, and immediately with Jeroboam and um, it, the kingdom just fell apart, didn't it? You had the northern ten tribes, and then you had the tribe of Judah. Simeon got swallowed up right in the middle of the tribe, if you know anything about your geography there. The southern kingdom, Judah, went into exile. You remember that? About, uh, about 400 or so years, 500 years after the reign of David at the very pinnacle, they went into exile for about 70 years and came back to the promised land in great hope because they knew what all the prophets had said. Isaiah had spoken. Jeremiah was the one who said uh, 70 years. Daniel was looking into it. And, and so they came back with great hope. And it never amounted to anything. And so 150 years after they came back, there were a couple prophets. you remember their names? Zechariah and, Mal- and um, Haggai, who encouraged them. You guys are not rebuilding the temple like you were called to do. You need to rebuild the temple. And so Zerubbabel and some of the others, uh, they rebuilt the temple. And they still had hope. And then Malachi, the last prophet, came, probably about 415 B.C. And after Malachi prophesied, there were 400 years of silence. No prophet came. No word for the Lord, from the Lord. Think about it, 400 years, almost twice as long as we've been a nation. And think about how times have changed. 400 years takes us all the way back in our history to the colonial era when the pilgrims were coming over. That was a long time ago, wasn't it? 400 years of silence. In the meantime, as I already said, Israel was overrun by Greece They spent a long time fighting invaders, and finally, they were under the iron grip of the most powerful empire ever to exist at that time, and it was Rome. But because of Malachi, Israel was waiting for someone to come before the Messiah. Turn with me back to the last book of the Bible, to Malachi. Let's look at chapter number 3, verse number 1. And we'll see this. In Malachi 3.1, we read this in verse number 1. Behold, I send my messenger. There it is. 
He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Understand this. Israel knew that the Messiah was divine. Because it says it right here. The 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 messenger is going to come, make things ready, and the Lord is going to inhabit his temple. And so Israel knew that there's a future messenger who will prepare the way for the Lord, who will come suddenly to his temple. And we see again in the last two verses of the Old Testament, turn to chapter number 4, verses 5 and 6. He says, Behold, I send you Elijah, before the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And you know what this, these verses do? Malachi chapter 3, verse number 1 says, I'm going to send my messenger. The natural question is, okay, if you're going to send a messenger, how are we going to know when this messenger does indeed come? Well, they say, he's going to be like Elijah, the spirit and the power of Elijah. And so they knew what to expect when the messenger came and what he was going to look like. And so here we have, in Luke chapter number 1, the birth of the messenger. This is setting the stage. The, the king is coming. His coming is imminent. And here is the one who's going to announce it. And we find that there are three scenes here in the preparation of the coming Messiah. And the first one is, we have a scene of a righteous but barren couple, don't we? Look at verses 5 to 7. And Luke sets the scene for us uh, during the days of Herod the Great, which is somewhere around 4 B.C., there was an older couple, maybe even elderly at this time. Now, fun fact the Levites, who were the ones who did a, a lot of the really physical work, they had the retirement age. You remember what it was? It was 50, right? Priests did not retire. They didn't have a retirement age. And so he was. this couple was older, possibly even elderly. They lived just north of Jerusalem. And when I say just north, uh, I've been to the birthplace of John the Baptist, the town that he grew up in. It's only about three or four miles north of Jerusalem. Very close to Jerusalem, an hour's walk from the uh, old old city there, the old the the uh, court, the four quarters of the old Jerusalem, and in the hills of Judea, they were a very pious couple. They were of good stock, and he was he was a priest, and he was of the division of Abijah, and she was a descendant of Aaron. That's that's good pedigree right there. Little history, I want to give you this. Look at what it says about him. What division is he from? He's from Abijah. Now, this is, I find this fascinating. If you don't find it fascinating, I'm, I just waste a couple minutes of your time here, but this is really interesting, okay? He's from the division of Abijah. If you want to know where that division comes from, it's from 1 Chronicles 24. And the, the priesthood was divided by King David into 24 divisions. The eighth division was the division of Abijah. But here is something that you need to know. After the 70 years of exile in Babylon, only four of those divisions came back. Only four came back. 
And so they had a real problem here. How are we going to serve in the temple for what amounts to three months out of the year and be able to take care of everything that we need to take care of at home, right? So they came together and they took the four divisions and they randomly divided them into 24 divisions. And so the division of Abijah are not uh, descendants of Abijah. It's just a random division that they made after the exile to to Babylon. But they both were a priestly stock. And that meant that the son that was born to, to Zechariah and Elizabeth had every right to become a priest. And there lies the issue. The issue is they were barren and they were old, right? And any woman who has ever wanted a child knows what Elizabeth must have endured, right? The prying questions, the insensitive remarks, the sharp pang of desire for someone else's baby, the nagging doubts about the goodness of God. And then you add to this the culture of the day. There was an amount of cultural shame for someone who was childless. Here in America, we don't even understand that because many people now choose to be childless. But in the day, Hebrew women endured another measure of shame in this, that barren women were considered disgraceful and considered under the punishment of God. If you did not have a child, God is punishing you because you are a bad person. You have sinned somehow. And so Elizabeth bore a stigma that people assumed that God was against her because she was ungodly. And so to believe that, and and here is the way we think about this, to believe that our suffering here is directly related to our righteousness is really bad theology. Okay? Let me flip that around. That also means that every bit of earthly goodness that we get here cannot be interpreted as God's special favor upon us. Okay? We can't interpret our circumstances uh, to mean one thing or another. Our sins are not always the cause of our suffering. Now, sometimes they are. If you go out and be a knothead, sometimes you suffer because you're a knothead, right? You know, I was... I know what that phrase means. My dad used it. All my family used it. But I'm not sure exactly what a knothead is. I just know what a knothead does or did. So anyway, many, many sins have destructive consequences that make us rue the day that we ever disobey God. And this is one of the ways that God trains us to, to pursue righteousness. But many of the things that we suffer have nothing to do with our own sin. Sometimes, Christians suffer for the exact opposite reason. They suffer because they are righteous, right? Sometimes we suffer because somebody else sinned. And sometimes God allows us to suffer because he wants us to be glorified through our suffering. And I'm going to tell you this. The vast majority of the time, we're not going to know the reason. We are not going to know the reason. And so therefore, we should be very careful not to reach the wrong conclusion about why something bad is happening to us or to someone else. And in the case of Elizabeth, in the case of Elizabeth, her suffering was for the glory of God, wasn't it? The question 
to ask when you're suffering is not, what have I done to deserve this? Or why am I going through the suffering? But how can I glorify God through this? And sometimes we spend a lot of time navel-gazing. Why am I suffering? Why? What did I do to deserve this? When actually, if you just ask, how can I glorify God through this, it actually works much better for you. And it glorifies God, right? Elizabeth is a perfect example. Elizabeth, she didn't wait for a child before her life could begin. She was busy serving God. She was, the Bible says that she was blameless, wasn't she? She was busy walking blamelessly in His commandments. And for her, what some people considered a tragedy was an opportunity. And no matter what suffering we endure, and by the way, everybody endures suffering, there is still a way for us to live to the glory of God. And that's the first scene we see of the announcement of the coming king. Secondly, we see another scene, verses 8 to 16, announced by an angel. In other words, the silence is broken. Remember I said 400 years of silence? The silence is about to get shattered now. What happened next is totally unexpected and utterly amazing. A man without a child is met an angel with a gospel. Listen to what the words say. Verse number 8. Now while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And I want to try to ingrain in your thoughts how utterly amazing this is. This, you must realize how special this is. Best estimates, there were 18,000 priests at this time. Okay? Now, you mathematicians can divide 18,000 by 24, and you realize that every division had 750 priests. So 750 priests served two weeks out of the year. So Zechariah was at the temple year after year after year, and what is he hoping? Man, I hope my lot is chosen. Every priest is saying that, right? I hope my lot is chosen. Serving with the other priests in his division, and he received this honor because every day, Two priests were chosen to enter the holy place and offer incense on the altar of prayer, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. And since there were so many priests, the choice was made by lot. And and it was the greatest day of your life when, as a priest, you were finally able to enter into that holy place and see everything that's in there. It was the greatest moment of his priestly career. It was the pinnacle of his career. It was like winning the Super Bowl. It's like winning the NBA championship or winning the Masters golf tournament. I'd say becoming president, but I I don't think anybody in their right mind wants to become president, right? And once he went in and served, he was not eligible to do it again the rest of his life. This is the greatest day of his life. Now, Luke doesn't tell us if he did the morning or the evening sacrifice. But I'm going to say from history, historians tell us that there were great uh, crowds for the afternoon. And since there's a mention of all the people, the crowds, he may have offered the evening sacrifice. 
The, the, the offering of the incense, by the way, came at the same time as the morning and the evening prayer time, and it symbolized, the smoke of that uh, incense symbolized the prayers of the people going up to God. That's what it symbolized. And so the people are outside praying for the nation of Israel while the priest is in the inside sending the incense up. And remember, what's behind the altar of incense? Directly behind that altar is the Holy of Holies. When he walked in, the table of showbread was to his right, the golden candlestick was to his left, and the altar of incense was right there, right in front of the Holy of Holies. Now here's how it's done. You want to know how it worked? His day started about 2.30 in the afternoon. 2.30 in the afternoon, he goes and he cleanses himself and does all the ritual cleansing. And then he would put on the special priestly robes that he would have to walk into the holy place in. No other robes could be used. Later, about an hour or so after that, he would walk through the temple courts Thousands of people on the temple courts, and everybody in the temple courts knew, hey, that's the guy that's going to offer the incense for us while we pray. And so everybody knew who he was as he walked through the crowds. He went up to the holy place where God was, and as he entered those gigantic doors that were uh, uh, two stories high that were open with the giant columns and the the golden grapevine above it, as he enters into that holy place, he sees to his right the table of showbread. He sees to his left, he sees the candlestick. And he sees right in the middle of the incense. And he walks in, he cleans up the ashes from the old incense and, and does some arranging, puts new incense on, makes sure it's going. And the smoke from that incense goes up. And right behind that smoke go- ascending is the veil, that four-inch thick veil to the Holy of Holies, and he is in there. And he's standing in the presence of Almighty God, burning the incense that wafted up into heaven with his prayers, and he's offering a prayer, and his heart is just pounding. Wouldn't it be pounding? Would yours be pounding? Mine would be. And then all of a sudden, his heart just stops because he's not the only one in that building. And the Bible says, Verse number 11, there appeared to him an angel of the Lord on the right side of the altar of incense. So here he is looking at the altar of incense on the right side, correct? No. I'm going to try to describe something that's really confusing. This is a fun fact. You can take it or you can toss it, but I want to explain something to you. The right side doesn't mean the right side in our our figuring. Did you know that in ancient Israel... All the right and left always is with a person oriented facing east. Now watch. If you go back to Genesis, remember the account where, where Lot and Abraham, their herds are too big, and um, they, they separated? It's very clear that they were facing the east because Lot went to the right to the south. And in ancient Israel, um, south is right and left is is north okay so when he's facing that altar of incense i know you're getting totally confused i'm sorry but i gotta say this he's facing west but the angel is on his left the right side of the altar of incense because right side 
So he's between the altar of incense and the golden candlestick. By the way, in Revelation, didn't Jesus walk through the golden candlesticks? So it would almost be natural, wouldn't it, for that to happen. And so here's this angel. That's, that's free. You want to know where the angel was? I just told you where he was. It's not where you think he was. Okay? Regardless of where that angel was, he was terrified. The Bible literally says fear was thrown upon or, or gripped him. It's like fear just gripped him and started shaking him or fear was just heaped or thrown upon him. And this is what happens when people see angels. Every encounter with an angel seems to go that way. The glorious, supernatural creatures that God created to worship and to work for him. And because, and this is the reason why. You want to know why? Angels, in this one we learn is Gabriel, is directly in the presence of God before the throne of God. And because he's with God, working for God, he reflects the glory of God there in that temple. It was as brighter inside that temple than it's ever been. Remember back in the, in the book of Exodus, by the way, Moses was up on the Mount Sinai. What happened when he came down? His face shone in, and what was the reaction of the people? It scared them. He was reflecting the glory of God, and he put a veil over his face. And here's this angel standing in the holy place, reflecting the glory of Almighty God, and Zechariah was fearful, just like you or I would be. The glory of God is more than fallen sinners can bear. The angel reflected God's glory. And so, this is a rare occasion, and he is terrified. And this particular angel, I said, was Gabriel. He's a messenger of salvation that God also sent to Mary. He's going to go to Mary in just just a, a few months and talk to her. And then he also went to Daniel before that. Remember that? He, he went, he was a messenger of God to Daniel. And so the first thing that Gabriel did was speak words of assurance. Look at what he said. He said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Now, it's hard to be certain exactly what Zechariah had been praying, but I think that it was a prayer for a child. And here's why. There's two reasons. Number one, the word translated prayer is actually the word for a specific request. It means your request has been heard. Your request has been heard. And in the context, what's the first thing he tells them? You're going to have a child. You're going to have a child. And so his prayer for a child. Now, if you think about it, he probably hadn't prayed that prayer in a long time. I think everybody understands why. He was old. His wife was old. And it was physically impossible for them to have a child at this time. And that prayer had probably stopped a long time ago. Yet it could be that Zechariah had decided, you know what, I'm in the temple itself, I'm in the presence of God, you know what, one last time I'm going to pray to God. That's always possible as well, isn't it? Either way, it's to God's glory, isn't it? But there's another request that God could have been answering, and I want to I go here very quickly. He was in the holy place to pray for the people of God, and outside in the courtyard was the people of God, silently watching to see the incense rise from the temple and then falling down to worship God. And Zechariah was in the holy place and he was 
interceding for them, and he was praying. You know what he's praying for? The salvation of Israel. And the salvation of Israel begins with the announcement of the messenger and then the coming of the one who's going to give their salvation. So either way, the prayer was answered, wasn't it? And this child was no ordinary child. Look at verse number 14 with me. The, the angel went on to say, And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine nor strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord to God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Exact quotation, isn't it? Of Malachi chapter number four. The, the angel display, uh, explained the significance of John the Baptist. He wasn't an ordinary child. He would bring joy and gladness. He was a herald of good news. The gospel, the Savior is coming, and with the gospel comes great joy, and he would be great before the Lord. And the barren woman who would bear the son who is great before the Lord would have joy. And with the gospel message, there is always joy, isn't there? There really is not much in this world that can bring us joy. Are you still watching the news, by the way? <laughs> what did I tell you about it? It brings no joy unless occasionally you're watching the sports section and you realize that the Cowboys won Thursday night, and that's good. So, Yeah, I went there, didn't I? So, But think about it. Joy comes... In your life, really, when you meditate on the goodness of God in bringing us salvation. Isn't that wonderful? That is a source of joy. This young man would be set apart. He's holy. How do we know that he's holy? Because he's set apart from everyone else. He would not have any wine nor strong drink. By the way, strong drink here, they're not distilled spirits. They didn't have distilled spirits. This is like a, a beer. It's a barley beer, barley-based barley beer. Strong, strong drink. He would be filled with the Spirit. He is not a Nazarite. There's no mention of hair, right? He's not a Nazarite at all. He, he is different from everyone else because he is filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. And as someone being filled with the Spirit, controlled, by the way, is another word for that word, controlled by the Spirit, he cannot allow himself the possibility to be controlled by any other thing that wine or strong drink can bring about, right? Not an Azurite vow. And so uh, he was not to be under the influence. So he is unique. He's neither Nazarite nor priest. He could have been a priest, but he's not. And he's definitely not a Nazarite. He's a unique individual, and he is filled with the Spirit from his mother's womb. And then to drive the importance home a little further, the angel quoted Malachi, written some 400 years earlier, basically telling John or Zechariah, look, the silence is over. The silence is over. Here's the prophet you're waiting for. The 400 years, it was a long time, but it's over. The Messiah is coming, and here's the forerunner. Prepare your, uh, your heart and get ready. Can you imagine, now step back with me, can you imagine the absolute shock of Zechariah? 
shock. It's almost too good to be true. Not only are they going to have a child in their old age, but this child is going to be the forerunner, the one everybody is waiting for. My child, everybody's going to know. My child. Well, what happens? We get to scene number three now, verses 18 to 23, and we find out the unbelief is, is silenced. Here's Zechariah standing before an angel. Have you ever figured, I have not, I've yet to figure out how can you stand before an angel who's announcing what's going to happen and not believe him? Have you ever wondered that? Well, he, he I'll ha- you'll have to ask him when we get to heaven. He, he's standing before a supernatural heavenly being and he has an objection. Look at his objection. He says, how, how do I know this? For I'm old, and my wife is old. Basically, we can't have children, dude. You know, we, we can't. The objection that Zechariah raised is the re- objection that people always raise when they do not believe in the supernatural power of God. Right? God, you can save anyone. I don't know how you can save that guy. Lord, if you'll just answer this prayer, I don't see how on earth you will answer this prayer. And we don't believe, and we're praying things that God tells, tells us to pray for, right? He, he, Zechariah, made the mistake that many Christians made today. You know what it was? He looked at things through merely a human point of view. He got his biology right, but his theology was dead wrong. God is the God of the universe, and he will do whatever he pleases. Zechariah couldn't believe it. And what is so ironic is that he had prayed for the very thing he ended up doubting God could do. There he was, worshiping God in a holy place, praying for a son, praying for a Savior. So when the angel told him his prayers were answered, he had every reason to believe the good news was delivered by Gabriel. It came from God's mouth to Zechariah's ear by, <coughs> by way of the angel who stood before God. And instead of believing, what did Zechariah do? He asked for another sign. He asked for another sign, some sort of confirmation. Apparently, he didn't expect God to answer his prayers. And sometimes, even a good man has trouble believing in the power of prayer through the truth of God's word. And he was a good man. Didn't we learn that? He was righteous. His wife was blameless. And eventually, God made a believer out of Zechariah, but not before chastising him before his unbelief. Look at verse number 19. And the angel answered him and said, I am Gabriel. I got to stop there. He knew who Gabriel was. He read the book of Daniel. He asked if he's thinking to himself, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh. This is not going to go well. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. By the way, good news is the word euangelion, gospel. It's the gospel. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And verse 21 tells us what happens next. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he'd seen a vision. He kept making signs and remained mute. <laughs> Think about this. Here's Zechariah with the, the greatest news 
of all time. News that Israel had waited for hundreds and hundreds of years for. David had lived a thousand years before this and promised a descendant. And they saw it all the way through the gospel. And here it is, and the guy can't even talk. Now, there's some people I know that if they couldn't talk, that would be the worst sins in the world. But I won't mention any names. Before Zechariah couldn't even tell it because he was speechless, God struck him dumb. And by the way, according to verse number uh, 62, he was also deaf. If you look down there, it's clear that he was deaf as well. And all he could do was make hand signals. Could you imagine? <laughs> okay, let's play a game of charades. You know, how are you, you going to tell people if you can't hear, you can't speak? You don't even know what, if they're responding properly to, to whatever you're trying to motion. He had to be the most frustrated man in Jerusalem. He went from the happiest man in Jerusalem to the most frustrated man in Jerusalem in the space of 30 seconds. Anyway, I shouldn't laugh at his calamity, should I? But what was God, seriously though, what was God doing? God was teaching him to trust his word. The priest's temporary disability was a sign against his unbelief. God said, you want a sign, Zechariah? I'll give you a sign. You ought to just take me at my word, and if you won't believe my gospel, I'll make it to where you can't share it. When we get to the end of the chapter, we see that the, what the gospel does. You know what it does? The gospel makes us sing and rejoice. Zechariah couldn't do it because he couldn't even talk, let alone shout or sing. How desperate he had to be to tell the good news about John for nine long months. He could have told them about John and ultimately about Jesus. And by the time God loosened his lips, he could hardly contain himself. We see that at the end of the chapter. Well, Zechariah finished his work. I want you to look at verse number 24, and we're going to close. Look at verse number 24. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, and look at her words, the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. You know what a special feature of Luke is? I may have mentioned this last time I, I preached on it. I can't remember. Special feature is he highlights what the gospel does for hurting people. That's a highlight of Luke. What does the gospel do for people who hurt? And here he shows us what the good news meant for Elizabeth. And the gospel was good, wasn't it? It's good for the nations, but it's also good for people like her. A woman upon whom God had looked with grace, and Elizabeth responded to God in faith. And when she realized that she was pregnant, she stayed home to rest and to worship and, and to um, pray to the God who allowed her to be pregnant, and she had faith. She had more faith than her husband, didn't she? And she waited for God's promise to come true. Her prayers were answered. Her reproach was ended. And unlike her husband, she was able to lift her voice and praise God for what he had done because she believed what God had said. I want to close by saying this is what God always wants from us. What does God always want from us? He wants our faith. He wants us to take him at his word. So whatever God says, believe. Can, can I give you an example of what I'm talking about? 
I, I've been thinking about this. Uh, I, I'm, I'm like a kid in a candy store when, when just so excited about what God is doing. And one of the things that he has done for three years, I'm into my fourth year of praying, that God would make Providence Bible Church a praying church. And there, the, the, the corporate prayer meetings that we have, uh, they were never big, and they, they dwindled down. We, we have the mothers in prayer. I remember last year, Leslie, remember coming to me? It was, it was discouraging, the numbers that they had gotten down to, just two or three, I think, is what it got down to. Prayer meeting here on Wednesday night got down to just a, a handful, literal handful of people, and that's it. Last Wednesday, it was full in that A8 with Mothers in Prayer the Wednesday before that as well. And um, Wednesday night, I was preparing for the prayer meeting, and I started getting messages from people. I'm not going to be able to make it. I'm not going to be able to make it. I'm not going to be able to make it. And I thought, well, I'm not going to make as many sheets as I normally do because we're going to be way down. And we had almost double what we normally have at the prayer meeting on Wednesday night. And all we do is we come to pray. And you know what? God is beginning to answer a prayer. God, please make us a praying church. Make us a church that gets together and prays for the furtherance of the gospel. Make us a church that gets together and prays, God, what would you have us to do? Where would you like to have us serve? God, bless the missionaries in very specific ways. We take their prayer letters and we pray for them specifically what they ask us to pray for. And, and we're involved in God's work. And so I would, in, I would encourage you, come pray for our children like Le- Leslie and the group does on, on the mornings, on Wednesday morning and Wednesday nights when we pray together. And Sunday morning, I love Sunday morning. You know what we do on Sunday morning and a real quick prayer meeting in there? We're praising God for what he's about to do and how good he is, and God is pleased. Lord is beginning to answer prayers, and it's so exciting to see. But we believe, don't we? God said that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe in the crucifixion and resurrection. He said that he will forgive anyone who comes to him trusting in Jesus. So if you're a sinner, believe in Jesus and know that your sins are forgiven. God has said that he will never leave you or forsake you. So whatever troubles you are facing, believe that God will help you to the very end. He also said that Jesus is coming again to judge the world. And if this is what God has said, we better be getting ready, turning away from sin and turning to Jesus Christ and telling the good news of the gospel to everyone that we come in contact with, right? God said it, and we believe it, and we act upon what God said because His promises always come true, even if it seems like they're taking a really long time. It's right on His timeline. Praise be to God. Lord, I thank You for the, the, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thank You that um, we can see from the, the birth narrative of John the Baptist and the promises being fulfilled. And we can draw encouragement through what we see. Lord, you are a God who is to be believed. We can have complete trust and faith and confidence in you. And we can act upon whatever you tell us. Because we know, Lord, that you are behind everything. And so, Lord, help us to look not only at you, but at the world around us in our church context, and in our families, that we'll look at everything through the eyes of faith. 
believing that you will fulfill every promise that you have made because you've done that you have fulfilled every promise you've made before and you will till the end in Christ's name we pray amen